So we're doing this series because, to be honest, I really wanted to teach a gospel again. When we first planted this church 12 years ago, we, we started with the gospel of Mark, and then I kind of went into an epistle, and then maybe another small epistle, then back into another gospel, and then an epistle, and then another gospel, back and forth on a Sunday morning. And I just really love going back to the gospels because I love going back to Jesus. I, wanna, I want us to see him. I want to see him. I want to hear what he has to say about life and about God and about me. And so I wanted to go back to do a gospel, but I thought, you know, I really want to do all the gospels. Then I thought, would everybody hate me if I taught all four gospels in a row? Would that be like way too much to handle? And I began to think about it and pray about it, and I thought, you know, actually, what I really want to do is help us understand what did Jesus teach Because one of the things that we find happening in Western culture is not a rejection of Jesus. People say, oh, we think he's a great teacher. We we like the things he had to say. But a rejection of Christianity. But some of that has to do with people not really understanding, one, who Jesus is, and two, what Jesus actually said. And so I think it's important for us to review this. It's important for us to go back over what did Jesus say? What, what, What did he teach? And why did he teach? So when we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5, we have the scene. Jesus has already begun his ministry. He's already began to uh, preach repentance. He's already began to heal. He's already had his 40 days in the wilderness in preparation for those things. He's already began to call his disciples to follow him. And when we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, in seeing the multitude. So these are those that are, are, are... marveling about what Jesus is doing with his healing. Uh, they're, they're, they're hearing him preach. They're hearing him call disciples after, themselves, uh, after himself. And, and they, they are gathered around to hear him. And so when he sees the multitude, it says, he goes up on a mountain. And when he, is, when he was seated, or I'm sorry, when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Now, this idea of him going to a mountain was probably practical more than anything else. You go on a mountain that's in a valley, what happens? Your voice projects, lots of people can hear you. The fact that he sat down, that's what rabbis did. That's what teachers did. You sat, and when you sat down, people knew, oh, okay, the rabbi's sitting. He has something to say. We need to be quiet and listen. And so he sits down. He takes that position of a teacher. And it's interesting because we see here that uh, it's when his disciples come to him, then he begins to teach. So you have this, this picture of he, he has something to say to the multitudes, but he directs it to the disciples. So he speaks to the disciples, but the message he speaks to them is for the multitudes. It's as if he wants them to understand. He wants the multitudes to understand, listen, this stuff applies to you when I've called you to be a disciple. And so this is not just a message just kind of like, hey, just in case you're wondering, a nice way to live, here it is. But this is Jesus saying, listen, the people that I've called, this is what I've called them to. Those that I've called to follow me, this is what I called them to. So in a very real sense, the, the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it looks like. Now, there's something about the series that we have to understand. Even though we're focusing on what did Jesus teach? We can't fully understand what Jesus taught without understanding what Jesus did, specifically his death and resurrection. 
I'm not just saying that because it's the right Christian thing to say. I'm saying that because we see that demonstrated in the Gospels themselves. Jesus would teach things specifically about his death and resurrection, specifically about what he came to do as the Messiah, as God's chosen king. And his disciples would go, oh, interesting. And then kind of among themselves saying, we have no idea what he's talking about. And it was only after he was glorified, only after the resurrection, that they began to go, this is what he meant. This is what he was doing. This is what he was trying to get us to understand. And so we are going to reference back to that often because we have the privilege of being this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection. We know what happens. We know Jesus does get crucified and we know he does rise from the dead. We know he's alive. And so we can read these things and understand these things from that side. And the truth is these things were recorded, written down after his death and resurrection. Now, the, the thing is, Jesus is in this place, and he sits down, and, he, and he, he begins to teach them. This is what's interesting. If you do a search for how often the, the Gospels talk about Jesus teaching or preaching, it comes out to about 150 times, 150 times that those verbs are used, teaching or preaching. But when you look about how often Jesus healed, you see it 65 times. Now, there's something about verbs that describe what our actions are, right? And so the reality is that Jesus, by his action, shows that his priority was teaching. He wanted people, he wanted those who followed him to understand truth. Why? Well, he tells them why. Listen to this, John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And he says, some of the most famous words in all the New Testament, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So Jesus set a priority in teaching because he knew, listen, he knew that what he said sets people free. Interesting that Jesus said about the truth in a, in a day uh, day and age uh, that we're in now where people say, oh, what's truth? It's all relative. It's whatever you make it to be. Actually, Jesus says it's not relative. Jesus says it's definable. You shall know the truth. You can define what it is. He also said it's liberating. It sets you free. But there's something else about this. Jesus going on a mountain, giving God's word to the people so he can give God's word to the people. The people who are listening to him here these were Jewish people who would have caught the imagery right away. They would have saw this as a messianic act, as an act of God's chosen king. Because, listen, they knew that God's chosen king would be a prophet like Moses. And what did Moses do? After he, God uses him to deliver God's people out of the promised land, what happens? He goes up on Mount Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he brings them, delivers them to God's people. Here's the word of God. And so what he's doing is he's speaking this. What, what, you know, Moses gets the covenant, so to speak. He, he says, okay, this is the covenant. This is the covenant God's making uh, with you. This loving contract God's making with you. And so Jesus here is beginning to break down the new covenant. This is meant to echo what we see like in the book of Deuteronomy. And they would have understood this. And so he's teaching them because he wants to set them free. But also, it, notice it says that when he, he, he opened his mouth, that's just a Jewish idiom, and he taught them saying. Now, that word saying, it doesn't just mean he started babbling on. 
He wasn't just kind of rambling away and just kind of like, you know, oh, random sayings, I think this or I think that. A bird in the hand is worth three in the bush or whatever. He wasn't just kind of throwing out little chunks of wisdom. The word for saying there means he set out a systematic discourse. He had something he wanted to lay out for these people. He had, this was a sermon you might say he had planned. He knew what he needed to communicate with these people. It's important for us to understand this, that Jesus in his teaching, listen, Jesus in his teaching, he taught systematically, he taught authoritatively, and he taught relationally. Systematic in the sense, like we just said, he had things that he purposely wanted to say that he was laying out. Authoritatively, because listen, he himself is the authority. We're going to talk more about that next week. But relationally, because listen, Jesus made it really clear that the relationship we have with Him, the connection we have with Him, that we experience that connection through what He says through His Word. Listen to this. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says plainly, this is the indication that you belong to me. You listen to what I say. You hear my words. He wants a relationship with these people. He wants a relationship with us. And so this is what we're talking about. Jesus prioritizes this teaching, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but all his teaching because he wants people to know him. So he has the, the multitudes, they're, they're, they're sitting down, they're listening to him. He begins to say this, and he starts off in verse 3 with this word, blessed, or blessed. Now again, uh, the Jewish audience there would have known what he was talking about. Do you remember way back in the book of Genesis, when, when God says he decides he's going, to, um, he's going to create a covenant people out of nothing. You had Abram, and you had Sarah, and they're, they're really old, and they have no children. And he says, from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And from that great nation, all the nations of the world are going to be what? Blessed. blessed. They're going to be blessed. The word blessing, the idea of blessing there is this idea that you have favor. God's shining His face on you. He's doing good for you. Often in the Old Testament, that favor was shown by material prosperity. So that when God would bless somebody, He made them wealthy. That's the Old Testament sort of picture of it. And so they, they saw, in fact, you can see some of this in Deuteronomy when God says, okay, you're going to be my people and I'm going to bless you as you obey me. That blessing is laid out into you're going you're to multiply, you're going to prosper, you're going to enjoy the riches of the land, it's going to be good for you and for your descendants. That's the blessing that he had for them. And so when Jesus starts off saying, blessed, they're probably going, yeah, blessed, yeah. And he says, blessed are the what? Poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to redefine what blessing is. He's going to take what was in the Old Testament and he's going to tweak it. He's going to, to really, in a sense, turn it on its head so that we see it as it's meant to be. He's going to say, listen, you want to be God's people? You, you Jews consider yourselves God's covenant people? Well, let me tell you what the blessings look like under the new covenant. 
Here's how you know you have the favor of God on you. Here's how you know that God's Spirit is at work in your life, that God is indeed drawing you into relationship. Here's how you identify those blessings. And it starts with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor? To be poor means you lack resource. But the word here for poor is more than just, you know, I'm having a hard time making ends meet. The word here for poor is the strongest word for poor. It's beggar. It's the idea of someone who's crouching and and kind of reaching up, please, anything, I'll take anything. It's the picture of Lazarus from Luke 16. Remember the parable of Lazarus, the rich man? And Lazarus is so weak and he's so poor that he's, he's got bed sores from laying down begging all the time and the dogs come and lick his sores. He's, that's all he is. It's, it's, he's identified by that, La, the, the, Lazarus the beggar. Same root here for this word poor. So when, when Jesus says you're poor in spirit, you're a beggar in spirit, he's saying this, spiritually speaking, when it comes to your spiritual resources, you have absolutely none. Zero. You're a beggar. You're utterly and completely bankrupt. You have nothing. You're destitute. But he goes on to say in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. It's interesting. Because he says, look, here's the first, the first kind of way we understand blessing. Here's the first way we identify that God's blessed in our life. We recognize our own brokenness. God reveals to us that we are indeed spiritually bankrupt. That we don't have what it takes to relate to God on our own. We don't have what it takes to do the things that he's called us to do. We are completely and utterly broke. This is probably one of the main reasons why people find the gospel offensive. They find the teaching of Jesus offensive if they actually take the time to read the teaching of Jesus. Because he's not just like saying, hey, well, nobody's perfect. He's going far deeper than that. And he says, no, not just nobody's perfect. Everybody's a beggar. Nobody brings anything to the table in the relationship between them and God. Nobody. Nothing. And this is hard for us. It's hard for us to have our brokenness revealed, but it's so important for us to understand. In fact, listen, Jesus would say it this way in Mark chapter 7. He would say, it's not what comes from, it's not what comes from inside, I'm sorry, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So Jesus makes it really clear both there and Mark. And as he starts this blessing, listen, the problem with us is us. The brokenness of the world is our brokenness. It's us. We are the broken ones. And we are so broken that we have nothing spiritual to offer God. We have nothing, no way on our own to relate to Him. All we can do is beg. And He says, no, blessed are you. Because He says, when you're in that place where you realize, God, I have nothing, He says, well, guess what? Then yours is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the the whole idea of mourning here is the idea that we actually should. We should mourn appropriately. We should see 
our beggarly state and say, God, this is not good. It's a bad thing. It's funny, sometimes you, you, uh, I'll see like a meme on Facebook about someone who's, who's poor. I saw this meme once where um, these, these, these kids are in a poor, uh, I don't know, they seem like to be like a third world country somewhere and they're, they're talking about, you know, kids, kids in America, they never go outside to play and they're kind of saying how bad that is. And it is bad, but they're acting like, oh, these people have such a nice life. They live in a third world country having absolutely nothing. But I bet you... They would say if they had a choice from staying there and coming to the West, most would want to come to the West. Now, a lot of them are going to be radically disappointed when they get here, <laughs> especially if they can't get in. But there's a reality that poverty isn't fun, isn't good. There's a brokenness that comes from it. That brokenness, guys, should be echoed in our spiritual poverty. See, here's the thing. If I say to you, hey, you're poor in spirit, you're spiritually bankrupt, and you go, yeah, okay, I get that, that's fine. And there's no mourning attached to that, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If it doesn't bother you that you are separated from your creator God, that that you cannot make yourself right with him, that you cannot bridge the gap of judgment that's there. If that doesn't bother you, if you don't mourn over that state, something's wrong. But if you do mourn over that state, if you do recognize that you, your heart is wicked, these things do come out of your heart as they do come out of mine, and you realize, man, I, I don't have anything to pay, guess what? Blessed are you. Because you only know that because God's showing that to you. He said, blessed, listen. Uh, well, let me say this before I move on to the next verse. John Stott, who a, was a well-known Anglican uh, pastor and uh, and commentary writer, he's a great commentary writer. He said this, he says, the Holy Spirit is a disturber before he's a comforter. <laughs> and that's the thing that sometimes we don't like. We like the idea of God comforting us. Yeah, blessed are those who mourn. Because, yeah, we're comforted. Yeah, we all want to be comforted. But do you realize that God, before he comforts you, first he shakes you up. First he shows you. Do you realize why you need comfort? Not because you're a victim so much, though we're all victims of sin as well but because you're a perpetrator. You've chosen to sin. You're a broken person who chooses to sin. And as a perpetrator, you're spiritually bankrupt. And unless God provides for you, you're lost. It's God who wants to show you that. That's not me trying to be harsh preacher man. This is Jesus, what he says. That we're broken. And it's the Spirit of God who who shows us that. Now, it's interesting. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And it's interesting. If, if, if you have that heart that says, man, I feel like I am broken, I, but I don't know how to mourn. I don't know what that mourning should look like. Listen to this. Here's how David mourned over his sin. The psalmist David, he says this. He wrote, wrote this. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And you have proved right in what you say. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. 
Guys, this is where it all begins, man. Every single one of us has to be in that place where we recognize, God, I'm broken before you. I have nothing to bring to you. All I can do is say, God, have mercy on me. Blessed are you if you're in that place. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Interesting. All these things have to do with our priorities being realigned. See, when God begins to bless us, first what He does, He reveals our brokenness. But then what He does is He changes our priorities. He begins to show us there's a better way to live, a different way I want you to live. Listen, when He says, blessed are the meek, don't think weak. Meekness and weakness aren't the same thing. The word for meek there is this idea, it's often used to describe a horse that's been tamed. It's power under control. Meekness really is our strength submitted to His, to God's. All right, Lord, I know that You've allowed me, You could allow me to continue in my rebellion. I could still choose that way. But because You've exposed my brokenness, I want to submit to You. I want to to let You lead. That's meekness. It's, It's interesting because that's the opposite of what we see in the world, isn't it? The world never says, hey, you know, the way, the way that you're going to be great in the world is just to, just to humble yourself and keep putting yourself lower and lower and lower and under other people. No, they say, don't do that. You're nobody's slave. You're your own master. Well, actually, it's just not true. And God calls us to be under him. Meekness is saying, Lord, I want to follow you. See, who inherits the earth? The earth is not the powerful, but the meek. Because guess what? The earth is the Lord's and the fullest thereof. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about righteousness, but think of it just simply as things as they ought to be, relationships as they ought to be. See, our priorities change. God begins to give us an appetite for that. I want things to be better. I want to see justice in the world. I want to be right before God. I want to walk in holiness. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. I'm sorry, first he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. James talks about that. The, in the book of James, it talks about how mercy triumphs over judgment. We are prone to judge. We want justice for us. But I don't want justice when it has to do with what I've done wrong. I want mercy. Well, God says, you know, bless all the merciful, they'll obtain mercy. See, our priorities change. We realize, Lord, the problem it starts with me. Therefore, what I, all I can do is say, God, I need your mercy. That's what's going to motivate me to be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know what this is talking about? It's, it's a priority that says God is the goal. I want my heart to be purified because I want to see God as He is. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 6 of Matthew. But then he also says this in verse 9. It's not just that our brokenness is revealed and our priorities are realigned, but also, listen, our identity gets established. He says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know what a peacemaker is? It's somebody who wants to always make reconciliation between fighting factions. That's a peacemaker. Do you know why a peacemaker is identified as a son of God? Because God is a peacemaker. God is a reconciler. God goes to his enemies and says, listen, 
here are the conditions of peace. We can be friends. And we know those conditions of peace are, are the death and resurrection of his own son and our faith in him. But still, he's a peacemaker. He's a reconciler. Therefore, this is what we're called to be. We want to see people get on. We want to see people reconciled. We want to see relationships healed. You ever been in a, you who are married, you ever been in a situation where things are going really pear-shaped in your marriage and your friends tell you, you know what, you deserve better. Girl, you should go on your own way. You deserve better than that. Or dude, don't listen to her nagging anymore. Come on, man, it's your life. That's not peacemaking, is it? That's not what God does. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Listen, this is not about how we're being persecuted, but why. Why we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Listen to what Peter says about the same issue. In 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, Peter writes, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler, you know, getting into other people's business. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Sometimes as believers, we, as Christians, we can, things can go bad. People can treat us bad, and we say, we're being persecuted. Now, are you sure you're not just being an idiot? <laughs> My boss won't give me a promotion. I know it's because I'm a Christian. Maybe you just don't work very hard. Make sure that you're not thinking, oh, because something bad's happening to me, it must be because I'm a Christian. If, if you're going to follow Jesus, yeah, some bad things are going to happen to you, but that's okay. Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, here's what he says. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for it is great, great is your reward in heaven, for so they, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is really interesting, because... The, in the Old Testament, the prophets, the, the ones that were sent by God to speak God's word, almost exclusively those prophets were beaten and uh, rejected and treated harshly by God's people, by the Israelites. And so in a sense, he's saying, listen, uh, when, when these guys persecute you, and you need to understand because the early church was, was all, almost all Jewish, okay, the first 3,000 or 5,000 converts were Jews. You know who persecuted them? Other Jews who didn't want to convert. And so it's interesting that he's saying, that he kind of, here's what you can expect, but blessed are you, if you're being persecuted because you're following me, blessed are you. The whole book of Hebrews is written about that. Here's why it's better to follow Jesus, because these guys were tempted to not follow Jesus because of all the persecution from their fellow Jews. Now, now, here's the thing. Jesus is redefining blessing, not because he wants us to think, okay, what can I do? I'll do all these things that Jesus talks about, and then I'll be blessed. That's not what he's saying. He's redefining blessing so that we can recognize when God is blessing us. If you're sitting here today and you're going, man, you're just making me feel guilty. Man, I'm, man maybe I'm not right with God. Maybe I, I need to think about how do I get right with God. Blessed are you. Don't you realize? If you're sitting there going, whatever, blah, 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 I could care less, you're not blessed. God wants to bring us to a place where we recognize our need for Him. That's how He wants to bless us. 
This is what Jesus is saying. And with that comes this, the kingdom of heaven, verse 3, comfort, verse 4, inheriting the earth, verse 5, being filled, verse 6, mercy, verse 7, seeing God, verse 8, being called sons of God, verse 9, the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. That's the benefit. When God does that work and He begins to show you, listen man, stop trying to earn my love. Stop trying to earn my blessing. Stop ignoring me. Stop being rebellious. When you get that conviction, when you realize, oh man, I'm in trouble, blessed are you. Because then God can say, guess what? I sent Christ to die for all those things. You see, Jesus is is setting them up for what they're going to experience through his death and resurrection and the sending of God's Spirit. He's, He's spelling it out for them. Here's the blessing of God, the new covenant blessing that you're going to experience because of what I'm going to do for you. Are you ready for this? It's not going to be health and wealth. It's not going to make you popular. It's not going to get you elected. It's going to be this. but it's going to allow you to have all those blessings. Now, he goes on in verses 11 to 16 to really explain the benefit. Okay, if this is the blessing of God, how does that benefit people? Look what he says, verse 11. Blessed are you when you were reviled and persecuted, and when they, I'm sorry, let me start again. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, he says. For great is your reward in heaven, right? So what's he saying here? He's saying, listen, part of the benefit is eternal life. There's a blessing that comes, listen, that includes eternal life. There's a hope of heaven. I say includes because the Scripture is really clear. This blessing or, or walking in the blessedness of God, which, which the New Testament often calls godliness, this blessing, listen, also has a benefit now. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8. He says physical training or exercise is of some value. All right, Timothy, you can keep pumping iron. It's okay. But what's really valuable is this. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You see, here's, here's the fact. Jesus is wanting his people to be motivated by reward. Hey, listen, I, I'm going to reward you. In the afterlife, when, when we are resurrected, you're going to be rewarded. Please don't think that you, if you serve God faithfully and you get in and someone else kind of barely gets in by the skin of the teeth that you get the same reward. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're both there. You both have a cup that's full and running over, but guess what? If you barely get in, you got a thimble, one of those little communion cups. But if you're walking faithfully with God, He's going to bless you. You're going to have more capacity to enjoy Him. He's going to reward you. And He wants us to recognize that. The benefit is we're going to be rewarded. Now, of course, we have to believe in the resurrection, don't we? We actually have to believe that. In fact, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul would say, if we, speaking of we as believers, if we have hope in this life only, we are among men the most pitiable. So if there's no resurrection, what Jesus calls us to live by here in the Sermon on the Mount and other sermons, if, if, if this is all we get, hey, this is how it's going to benefit your life, people should feel sorry for you. 
You know, I hear people say, as Christians sometimes, you know what, even if I find out it's not true, my life's been so much better knowing God, even if it's all not true. Really? You're doing something wrong. Because I'll tell you what, living like this ain't easy. Maybe it's nice to be in a part of a church community. Maybe it's nice because you've grown up in the prosperous West. Maybe that's all nice for you. But tell that to our Syrian brothers and sisters who get beheaded because they refuse to deny Christ. Oh, my life's been better, even if it's not true. <laughs> really? Life's not better, but the resurrection is. There's hope there. This is what Jesus is saying. This is not about, listen, being a Christian is not about life improvement. If you came here today with a friend and you're going, hey, this will really help you get through your exams. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not that God doesn't care about your exams. He wants, he, he's, he's a loving father. He wants to help with that too. But that's not the point. The point is, listen, that Jesus is turning this whole thing upside down. And he's saying, listen, this is the benefit of following me, eternal life. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Salt was the way they used to pay soldiers. Salt was a very valuable commodity. Remember, they didn't have canned goods or uh, they didn't have freezers or refrigerators. So the only preserved food had to involve the process of using salt. And because salt was so valuable, basically they would, as I said, they would pay soldiers in salt. Now, you know what salt does. It preserves things, right? It makes us thirsty, that's for sure. It adds flavor, that's for sure. But mainly its, it's, it's, it's objective, especially how it was used in the first century, was to preserve things. And so there was a situation where if when they would sort of have, they'd have this, these houses or these, these big kind of open sheds or something where they would store the salt to pay the soldiers. They would just throw that salt in these massive piles and it would just be on the ground. And so this, the salt that was on the bottom would begin to absorb the gypsum and different kind of minerals that were in the ground and it became no good. And so the only thing they would use it for is when that would happen, they would scoop it out and they would shovel on the road and would just kind of keep the weeds down. There's nothing else they could do. It was no good. And Jesus is kind of saying that, listen, if you are soaking up the world, you're not going to be salty anymore. You're not meant to soak up the world, you're meant to preserve the rot. You're meant to slow down the rot. Now what does that look like? Well, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, let your speech always be with grace, notice, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. So the saltiness that we have is, it's not about just saying, that's rotten, salt. That thing's rotten, salt. That's not the point. The point is to say, hey, there's a God of grace who can deal with that festering sore. Do you mind? Sprinkle sprinkle we're meant to be the seasoning of salt we're meant to keep this world from going full on to rot in fact that's why these beatitudes are there that's why these commands are there that, that these things being poor in spirit mourning over our sin being meek being hungry and thirsty for righteousness being merciful pure of heart peacemakers being willing to be persecuted these things season 
this earth. These things keep rot from coming. Now, he also says this, though, in verse 14. I'm almost done. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on the hill cannot be hidden. Plain as day, right? If you ever, I haven't really seen it here so much because there's not many hills, but definitely in the States there are a lot more mountains and stuff where we were in California, and it was interesting. You'd be driving through the desert in certain places, and it would be really dark. There's hardly any even lamps on the, on the motorways. And then all of a sudden, in a distance, you would see all these lights, a city on a hill. You couldn't hide that. You'd have to turn off the lights to hide it. Just, there's a city there. How do you know? There's the light. Really obvious. In fact, he says in verse 15, when you light a lamp, you, you don't put a lamp over it. You don't try to cover up that light. You put it on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, here's the thing about lamps, okay? You don't light a lamp so you can stare at the lamp. You light a lamp so you can stare at something else. Do you, do you, like, you know, if it's dark in your house and you kind of feel around for a torch, you turn on the torch, you do, you just blind yourself. If it's a beautiful day outside, the, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, you don't stare at the sun because if you do, you go blind. You appreciate how the sun sheds light on everything else. You, you get to see all things as the way they ought to be. This is what light does. That's why he says in verse 16, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, listen, the benefit of following Jesus in this new covenant, the benefit of the blessing of God on our lives, it, shows the, it slows down the rot that's in this world, but also it reveals the goodness of God. As we do the good works that God has for us to do, you know what happens? We are pointing past ourselves. We're saying, look, I'm only doing this not because I'm good, but because there's a God who's so good. Remember the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blesses the man who trusts in him. Oh, taste and see. Taste. Experience. You know how God intends people to experience his goodness? Yeah, there's, a, there's an individual subjective reality that God wants us to experience. Romans 8 makes that super clear. There's for sure that God wants us as individuals to, ex- to experience his goodness. But you know how God wants the world to see the goodness of God? Through the good works of his people. Jesus calls us to do good works. So not so we can say, see, we're good, the church is good. Or even the church does good. But we can point past ourselves and say, there's a God who's good. We fall short of his goodness, but he's good. And any good that comes from us comes from him. Here's how Paul would say it in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of, your, of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, he says, lest anyone should boast. You need to understand something, especially if you're not a Christian yet. If you're here and you're kind of just checking out all this Jesus stuff, you need to understand something. All these things we're talking to, remember, Jesus says them to the disciples for the benefit of the multitudes. You've got to be a disciple before this can happen. You've got to be a Jesus follower before this can happen. He's not saying you have to do these things to become a Jesus follower. He says you do these things because you are a Jesus follower. Do you understand the difference? If I put on uh, you know, yellow, a yellow jersey and I put on 
the, 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 short, the short trousers and the, and the yellow and green socks, and I go on the pitch, it does not make me a Norwich City footballer. It makes me a fat American looking like an idiot. <laughs> Putting on the uniform doesn't make me something. But if I had those skills, unfortunately I don't, if I had those skills and I got recruited and I signed a contract, I can't go on the pitch just dressed the way I want to be. I've got to put on the uniform. I've got to play the way the coach tells me to play. That's what has to happen. So what's happening here, listen, is that, is that Jesus is saying, this is not what you do to get saved. This is not what you do to get right with me. This is what you do when you're right with me. This is what it looks like when I make you right with me. Paul says, we're not saved. We're not made right with God by our works. It's not of our works, lest we could boast. We could say, look at me, I've done so well. God's, got, God's blessed me because I've done so well. No, no. But, listen, we're not saved by our works, but you are saved for works, he says, for we are his workmanship, his good work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. What are those good works? There are things that God wants us to do that benefit others so we can point to him. That's good works. How you do your job is a good work God's prepared beforehand for you. How you love your family is a good work God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. How you love your neighbors, how you serve your church, those are all good works that God's called you to walk in. For what reason? To point past yourself and to point to the goodness of God. Now I want to say, if you're here, if you've been here for a while and you think, well, yeah, John, but I don't see many good works coming from you are coming from this group. And you feel a bit disappointed in what you've experienced at Servants Church. First, let me just apologize and say humbly, we do fall short. We do fall short. But I also want to say that God's still good. And I'll tell you what, if you're one of those people that feels like this church has let you down, maybe what you need to do is say, God, are you who you said you are? Help me to be, help me to know you as you said you are so maybe I can set an, a, an example for the rest of the people in this church. And if you're one of those people that is here because the Christians that you know actually are great people, they do good things. And you're thinking, man, they do good things. Do you realize it's not because of them but because they have a good God? There's a good God who sent his own son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. You see, this is not about moral conformity. This is about supernatural change. That this good God who is supernatural wants to change each of us from the inside out. And he wants us to be able to recognize what that change is going to look like. It's going to look like just what we talked about today. These new attitudes, these B attitudes.